This is Kyle Homewood, Director of Community Engagement and Special Programs at Arizona Opera. It's my pleasure to welcome you to a brand new Arizona Opera season. The season kicks off with the first opera of our McDougal Red series, Shining Brow, by composer Darren Hagen and librettist Paul Muldoon. The opera portrays a very tumultuous part of the life of famous architect Frank Lloyd Wright and explores the relationship between he and his mistress, Mema Borthwick Cheney. To get greater insight into Shining Brow, I spoke with the opera's composer, Darren Hagen, to hear a little bit more insight from his creation process as well as some of the finer aspects of the work. I started by asking Darren where the idea for this opera came from and how its composition came about. Well, in 1990, the Madison Opera in Madison, Wisconsin, contacted me and asked me whether I wanted to write an opera about Frank Lloyd Wright, who, of course, had Taliesin North, which is not very far from Madison. And I was just a very young composer, just out of college. And, of course, I said yes. They even gave me a title, Shining Brow which is the translation of Taliesin. Mm -hmm. And I said, what part of his life would you like me to concentrate on? And Roland Johnson, the marvelous uh, music director of that company, said, oh, no, 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 we want you to do it. You, you can do anything you want to do. Just use that title and make it about Frank Lloyd Wright. So I said, sure, great. Uh, and I was at the McDowell Colony, uh, which is an artist colony in Peterborough, New Hampshire, uh, and I, I happened to be there with a, a fabulous poet named Paul Muldoon, who was uh, reading the newspaper in front of the fireplace about six feet away. I was in the telephone booth because this was before cell phones. And I leaned out just on a lark. I said, Paul, would you like to write an opera? And he said, sure. Little did I know we would work together for another 25 years and write four operas together. And then he would be decorated by the queen and win the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, so, but there he was, just another young man. And uh, he said, what about? I said, Frank Wright. And he said, oh, the architect, how nice. And we chose the, the period of his life that we did because we split up and both read as many books as we could about Wright uh, and spoke to people who knew him and then convened and between ourselves, decided on the part of his life that, that spoke most eloquently to us, who were coming to terms with family, life, and career, uh, what it means to be a creative person, and have the responsibilities of being a person. Uh, we also wanted to find the point in his life where we could like him. And I know that that's, that's not a popular thing to say, but, you know, a lot of times the hagiography is the way many people approach a project about a famous architect or person. Uh, but we decided not to do that. We wanted to write something honest and something that really accepted that Wright was a complicated and, and very self-actuating individual. And what would be the cost of that on the people who loved him? Uh, what what so we found the point in his life where where all of these terrible things happened and brought him to possibly the lowest point in his life where he would at the end of the opera be in a position where he would either become Frank Lloyd Wright the one that went down in history 
or he would have been a man who was destroyed by life. And, of course, we know what happened, but to answer that question is not interesting. But to put our character, our Mr. Wright, in a position where he has to decide, now that's an interesting place to lead the audience. We lead them up to the precipice, and then they get to decide, too. Though Shining Brow is a historical fiction, audiences have the pleasure of seeing a well-known historical figure brought to life on stage. With that in mind, I asked Darren what his process was for making sure that this opera could be as accurate historically as possible. I spent uh, a fair amount of time at Taliesin in Spring Green, and I came down to Taliesin West, and Paul did as well. Uh, we, we, we were there, I think, for a week and a half and visited with wonderful men who became good friends of mine over the years, Richard Carney, who used to be the CEO, and the, the head of the Taliesin Fellows, and and um, a lot of dearly departed, even then old, uh, members of the Taliesin Fellowship who knew Mr. Wright, and spent many hours talking with them. Um, Edgar Toffel, for example, uh, you, did a wonderful impression of Frank Lloyd Wright. And of course, I watched him in his interviews on television. But Toffel, uh, I, I got to ask questions like, you know, do you, did you remember uh, the last Mrs. Wright? How did Mr. Wright behave when he was really serious about something? Or when what, what, did he become more gentle when he was angry? Or did he become, you know, I was able to aspire to psychological verisimilitude through interviewing the people who knew him. And the crucial moment came about a week and a half after I arrived at Taliesin, where I took a midnight walk and had scotch with Dick Carney. And Dick said, Darren, we, we don't expect you to make Mr. Wright a nice man. He could be, you know, a real terrible man. Uh, but we expect you only to make sure that he is a great man. And I said, I promise. And I knew full well, even then as a young 20-something fellow, that, that any time you make a person sing on stage, they become uh, worthy of compassion and empathy. I knew that he would be humanized and become a, a sympathetic character just because he's, he's baying like a, a dog, the way that opera singers do, and the way that we count on them, too. Um, and he and he gave me his blessing, and and I knew then that we had a show. Paul Paul wrote what he wrote. We we then got together. We co-wrote. We decided the place in his life we wanted to treat. Then we co-wrote a treatment, uh, a filmic treatment, where each scene had uh, the events that would happen in that scene. And I created dramaturgical structures, musical structures to underpin each scene that would manifest whatever the Venn diagram of emotions and psycho psychological uh, interactions were in that scene, Paul would write, and he wrote an act, and then I would musicalize that act and ask him to make small changes as, uh, as I musicalized it. Since its initial performances in the early 1990s, Shining Brow has been revised multiple times and been presented in different versions around the United States. I asked Darren why exactly he has done these revisions and what his process is like in making small changes to the opera. The reason that uh, I go back in 
and revise is because theater is a living art form. Opera composers who write an opera and walk away from it and think that they've written that opera forget that you don't stage the opera that the composer wrote. You stage the opera that the people in the room can sing. You don't stage the Hamlet that Shakespeare wrote. You stage Hamlet that is appropriate for people in St. Louis in 2017, June. And you don't do a Shining Brow that was appropriate for 1991. You do a Shining Brow that is appropriate for 2019. Just as Stephen Sondheim revises Sweeney Todd or Company, uh, we must, as opera composers, as serious, committed opera composers, accept that we didn't necessarily get it right for all times. We got it right for that performance situation. There's a profound humility in accepting that part of being an opera composer that I embrace with all my heart. The first version was written for Madison Opera. It had a large orchestra of uh, 60, a chorus of 35 men and women, uh, the uh, 12 comprimarios, secondary roles. Um, then I made a, a new version for Chicago Opera Theater a few years later that had a much smaller orchestra, had about 36 people in the pit, which is more of a standard instrumentation for regional companies. And it took the chorus down to 16, didn't do anything else to it. Then I made a version, uh, I might get it all mixed up in my head, but I made a version for Florida Southern University that had a ginormous chorus because they had a great chorus uh and that's the bloated brow then there was a, a very small version for 12 instruments in the orchestra and a cast of six that cut out all the choral numbers and just centered on the the nuclear reactions between the characters and that was for a site-specific staging at falling water house and it was staged in the house by Pittsburgh Opera Theater or Opera Festival of Pittsburgh. Um, that was extraordinary to see them singing, Frank Lloyd Wright singing in Falling Water. Arizona opera audiences will see a new one-act version of the opera known as the Taliesin West version. This version will be performed in a new production designed by director Chaz Rader Schieber and designer Jacob Clymer. This is a version that, uh, is, that takes the women out. And this was actually the idea of, of the director, Chaz, uh, who saw that the dialectic, uh, the gender dialectic in this show was very interesting when intensified. Uh, riot, the men are draftsmen. There was actually Marilyn Mahoney, who was a female drafts person, who we put in the original Shining Brow, uh, and she was in the office surrounded by all these male draftspeople. Uh, but we have Mae Machini's role in his life really highlighted with, with almost a pin spot of theatrical intensity by taking all the other women except for the maid, who is this, this uh, it's very stylized fury character. You know, remember the Furies from, from antiquity. We have a real flesh and blood Mae Machini, and we have a stylized female Fury, surrounded by all these men, self-actuating men. 
So it's a fascinating, it'll be really interesting to see how the mechanism, the dramaturgical mechanism of this show behaves with that uh, dialectic in hand. I think the older, the older you get, if, if you really are dedicated to theater, the easier it gets to cut material. Uh, it was very, very hard for me to cut material in my 20s. Uh, I think I thought that it was better than it was. Uh, it, but now I look at uh, everything in Shining Brow works in, in the way that it does. Um, and the amazing thing about an opera is that no matter how mediocre really the opera composer is, the the mechanism of the opera company and all of the exquisitely talented, gifted people who lavish their gifts on this document can lift up a mediocre document and make it fabulous. And uh, when, I, when I was coming up in school, we used to call it spraying Febreze on the opera. And my goal has always been to write an opera that required no Febreze. Um, but when it comes to cutting material, um, I, I'm not committed really to anything in any of my operas anymore. Uh, if the situation requires that the various weights and balances of the characters must shift, um, then so be it. That is the joy of the process of, of doing it. So this, this Shining Brow is not the Shining Brow that the Buffalo Philharmonic and Joanne Folletta recorded with Brenda Harris and, and, and um, my beloved Bob Orth as Frank Lloyd Wright. This isn't that opera. That was a much more sprawling, Britain-esque uh, opera. This is a more um, edgy, darker, swifter opera. Act breaks are tricky because it gives people an opportunity to go out and talk about what happened in the first act. The, when you don't let people off the hook for an act break, uh, there's more of a Damoclesian dramaturgical sword, for lack of a less pretentious way of saying it, hanging over them. So this show, I think, will land heavier and harder than the original version of, of the show did. Musically, Shining Brow is an interesting composition. As a modern opera, but set in a time over a hundred years ago, and about a figure that was certainly ahead of his own time. This is what Darren had to say about the musical aesthetic of the piece. Well, we live in a time where opera is uh, newly in vogue in our culture because it has visuals, it has everything. And for a hyper-saturated culture, uh, that is used to hearing music and drama and words and multitasking, uh, opera seems to foot the bill for us now. And uniquely, American culture has these three traditions. It has the music theater tradition, which is based on German Zingspiel, and we have the operatic tradition from Western Europe. Uh, and and we, in the middle of that, we have music theater slash opera. And it's what we do better than anybody on the planet the combination of musical theater gestures and stylization and operatic high culture singing. It's a, it's a, it's a doomed place because you can't please any of the opera lovers 100% and you can't please any of the guys who like music theater 100%, but it's where, uh, it's where Candide lives and West Side Story and, 
uh, all of the, the pieces that are, in my opinion, the finest American operas. I'm so fascinated by, by that thing, that place between genres. I have written 12 operas now. Each one of them has different setting and different characters with differing levels of education, uh, access to their inner angels and devils. Uh, Wright and Mema sing a very sophisticated uh, transatlantic sort of music. They were aware of Richard Strauss. They were aware of contemporary American art music. And so the music they, that they sing is, is redolent of 1920s art, art music, not operetta, but sophisticated art music with an underpinning of, of Britain-esque 20th century writing because Wright was certainly 50 years ahead of his time. Uh, and the way he thought, and so was Mamachini. So that that's the language that they speak. The the newspaper reporters sing barbershop quartet music. Uh, the uh, construction workers and Americana, uh, a very comforting bourgeois Americana of blues, uh, call and response. Um, the the when the co- the um, draftsmen sing a very German sort of Brahmsian American. Uh, again, the kind of music that men in Chicago of a certain attainment and education would sing around that time, working in the atelier of, of a Wright or a Sullivan. And at, at the end, there's a baseline idiom of tonality, uh, but each character, now the sophistication of the, the score is a different thing. The key centers, each character lives in a different key. When they interact, their key centers interact. When Frank Lloyd Wright, who lives in B-flat major, uh, falls in love with Mae Machini, who lives in E major, they are associated by the forbidden interval of the tritone, just as Leonard Bernstein had the lovers in West Side Story associated by a tritone. Mm-hmm. These, are the, these are the mechanisms by which a lyric theater composer messes with the heads of the audience. Because an audience doesn't have to understand these things, but they do intuit them, and they are moved by them. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing and a very inspiring thing to see an audience move with a key shift, let's say, and to see uh, Louis Sullivan sing in A minor and to have a tolling bell with him that, uh, that instantly evokes his Irish Catholicism you know, and his solitariness. These are, these are the the things that makes opera that make opera go. I have a couple of places in this show that I really love. And the first is the moment at the end of the first act when uh, Mamachini really understands that she is both doomed and gets it. Um, it's, it's as I get older, I, I relate a lot to Mamachini um, that l- more important in the interaction between people than love even, I think, as you get older, is understanding. And I think that the the tragedy is that Mamachini understands exactly what's happened to her. At the when she sings There Is No Balm in Gilead, uh, it is a biblical biblical injunction, no less.
the other moment that uh, I'm really looking forward to is Louis Sullivan um, when he cries out to Wright because he gets Wright as well. He understands him and he understands that Wright is in as much pain as he. Uh, the men love each other as, as only a mentor and protege can. Um, Wright's inability to overcome Sullivan stands in the way of Sullivan being able to um, to love him freely and Sullivan's own pride keeps him from being able to say, go on, go on, just do your thing. And the, the, the third moment that I'm really looking forward to and the one that I'm looking forward to the most is the, the real nobility that Edwin Sheeney manifests when he says, fate left me with this potsherd and you're a Sisyphus with your boulder, a Prometheus and his rock. And he sees Wright living this huge existence, the hero's journey. Oh, it was that the master builder assigned Prometheus his rock and Sisyphus his and I do believe it's an arrowhead. You know, when I wrote this show originally, I thought of myself as somebody who was going to go out and change the universe and, and be a big famous composer. And I did what I did, and I've, I'm doing what I'm doing. And I relate a lot more to Edwin Sheeney now than I relate to the nascent Frank Lloyd Wright that we wrote in this opera. And... I the one thing that I did take special attention to when I, when I was crafting this version for Arizona Opera is to make sure that Edwin Cheney was just not some stolid Midwestern guy that he was he was in fact smart enough to know exactly what was going on and that he was living the life that he was living he let his wife go to live with this lunatic you know architect didn't treat him with a particular respect, but soaked him to build this great art object for him. Um, but he knew it. He was self-aware. He was living a mindful existence. Cheney is a fascinating guy and possibly the most interesting character in the opera. So that's I'm looking forward to a lot in coming to visit with you folks in Arizona and, and seeing this iteration of the show. It's a very different show than I originally wrote. Hopefully you are as excited as we are for the world premiere of the Taliesin West version of Shining Brow. Performances will take place in Phoenix at the Herberger Theater Center, September 27th, 28th, and 29th, and in Tucson at the Temple of Music and Art on October 5th and 6th. 
Shining Brow is presented as part of the McDougal Arizona Opera Red series, and its production is made possible in part through generous support from the Flynn Foundation, Nancy Foster, Michael and Beth Kasser, Dr. Stephen and Barbara Monk, PHX Architecture, John Johnson and Patricia Coyne Johnson, and Gensler Architects. Major institutional support for Arizona Opera is provided by Virginia G. Piper Charitable Trust. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Arizona Opera Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts to make sure you're updated when new episodes release. I'm Kyle Homewood, and on behalf of Arizona Opera, I look forward to seeing you at the opera soon.